Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Archimedes, the ancient Greek engineer, said, Give me a place to stand and I will move the earth. Our guest today is an engineer, an innovator, a leader, and one of the longest-serving top ASX CEOs. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blend & Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode, with Lindsay Partridge, Managing Director of Brickworks, we cover how he grew a business from $4 a share to $19, and his philosophy on playing the long-term game, why business conditions in Australia are toxic, and the number one reason why executives fail. Lindsay joined the Austral Brick Company in 1985, before being appointed Managing Director of Brickworks in 2000, making him one of the most successful and experienced leaders in Australian business. He was also awarded the Member of the Order of Australia for services to the building and construction industry in 2012. So sit back, learn, and listen to this highly engaging and open discussion with Lindsay Partridge. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Lindsay, where did your journey begin? Well, it's interesting, you know, because I've been a brickmaker all my life, but where I grew up, there was an old lady a couple of doors down that was a potter. And used to walk past the place every afternoon on the way home from school and she'd always have the garage door up and she'd be using the wheel or the kiln or whatever and I'd wander in and talk to her and got to know her pretty well. And then when I was a young teenager, my father decided also to get a kiln, although he used to enjoy more setting things up than actually doing them. But he fired the kiln a couple of times, so that sort of became part of my life. But my father also sort of got me involved in, you know, he'd pull cars apart and rebuild them. And so I had sort of like mechanical background and, and same with building. He would do things all the time. He was a fiddler at a tinkler, you know, so I got a very good understanding of mechanical things and had a bit of an aptitude towards maths and science. And so when I, you know, I wanted to become an engineer, that was obvious. But I couldn't work out, if I wanted to be civil engineer, there was a thousand graduates going in. And I thought, how do you be somebody amongst a thousand? You're just yeah. not going to stand out. And I had a friend that was doing ceramic engineering. At that point in time, I was real excited because like the lining of the space shuttle and all these things were all ceramics. Is that so, what ceramic engineering is all about? Yeah, yeah, making silicon chips and it was sort of a bit of the future. But, you know, traditional things like, you know, toilet bowls, and floor tiles and bricks. So I went in and did that and we were in a record year of six. So that just suited me down. And amazingly, out of that record year, they produced two CEOs. Is that right? The other one being Mark Chalou, who was LA Brighton CEO for many years, uni with him. But yeah, so that's where it all started. And I think I should add one more thing there, which is really interesting that people today don't understand. In the mid-70s, you know, it's 12% unemployment. Yeah. I had to get a job. I'd come from a broken family, done it pretty tough. So halfway through, I thought, see if I can get a holiday working with a company. And that was PGH Industries in those days. Yeah. 
And so I started with them and my results came out. I was halfway through uni and I sort of got involved with the opposite sex in the last period and didn't do very well. But they liked the way that I was going. They offered me a cadetship. And so I went from a past credit student to a high distinction distinction student to finish my degree. But it always was a year longer. It took me five years because I lost that one subject in the second year. So that was where it all started. And I stayed with them once I graduated. So that was the entry point. But why are they pursued in this uh, industry of bricks? Well, look, and this comes down to one of the core values of our own company or one of our core beliefs. I always believed that I wanted to make beautiful things that lasted forever. I just, in myself, couldn't feel that I could sell things to people that I thought would rust out or fail. I mean, you look at today, what are the worst appliances you buy? Vacuum cleaner, life two years, a hairdryer or something. It doesn't last 12 months. You always got a spare in the cupboard because they're that bad. We go for a 100-year guarantee. We don't muck around, so... We're genuine about what we're trying to do and we're trying to really give people the best value they can and that's just a core belief and it's, um, the company picked up on that only in the last few years and that you'll see that in a lot of our logos and that, you know, we make beautiful products that last forever. So can you talk us through Company Brickworks? It's an anomaly. It's a great Australian company. It's had its fair share of press coverage and also you were promoted fairly quickly and also promoted to being a chief executive at a fairly young age. So you want to talk us through that, June? Yeah, well, I'm about to run up 20 years of CEO and MD and that's a bit of a rarity. Well, Brickworks, first of all, we're knocking on the door of $3 billion in market cap, top 100 company, three major parts to it, investments. You know, we've got a couple of billion dollars invested in Washington H. Salt Patterson, investment house in their own right. We've developed a property trust, which is now well on its way. The total value is $1.5 billion, but it's a joint venture with Goodman. And of course, then there's building products, which is really part of the smaller part of it. But, you know, we do have about 50 plants, 2,000 employees across two continents, Australia and the United States and North America. So quite a large enterprise. But what did you inherit 20 years ago, Lindsay, when you got the gigacy? I had five factories in two states. Is that right? Yeah. And a market cap of $450 million. The share price, I was just looking at the other day, was $4. And we're $19 today. So what did you think? Where was the ideas coming from, Lindsay? Well, it comes back to something we'll talk about a little bit later on, what makes a great CEO. But one of the things is you've got to have the go gene and you've got to have the mongrel gene in you. And if you haven't got those two things, you're not going to go far. So if I'm at A and I want to get to B and somebody's in the way, well, they're getting out of the way because we're coming through. So, and that's always been your DNA? Well, it, it always has. Yeah, it has to be because yeah, I want to. I enjoy working. I love being successful. Yep. I couldn't think of it any other way and we're just going to do what we have to do to, to get there. Yeah. But at the same as goes in the company, we realised that that's all we had was the brick business and the investment in souls. We didn't have any debt, so we're very good yep. in that regard. But how could we survive? We're too small to be relevant. Yep. You know, we have to grow. We're not relevant anymore. And they hadn't grown. They hadn't bought a business to the founding managing director, William King Dawes, since he had died. And that was in the early 80s. So it had been 20 years. They hadn't bought a single thing. It was pretty desperate. And the company, when I first joined, was, was really doing it quite tough. Yeah. And what did it actually manifest? Was it just purely bricks? We, we made vitrified sewer pipes yep. and bricks. And now what's the offering, Lindsay? Well, you know, we got in and out of things on the way. We, we got in the floor tiles and got out of floor tiles. We got out of the vitrified clay pipes. But we now make roof tiles. We handle both clay and cement roof tiles, uh, masonry blocks, pavers, specialised stones. We make precast panels and we have some timber operations, mainly supplying battens to the roof tile business. So you're happy where the business is at? Yeah, look, this is really fabulous. Our share price is going strongly. Yeah. Shareholders should be happy. We're, yeah, of course, finding things a bit tougher in, in building products. But our property trust is going from strength to strength. American acquisition has opened a whole new opportunity, a whole new chapter in the company. It was one of the problems we had was that we were sort of closed off. You know, people saw, oh, well, you know, they only can develop the land they've got and they didn't quite realise how much it was. So you want to talk and, us through that. So that's the pitch that you've dung up for the clay for the bricks or what is that? Well, 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 well yes, it was. They, they needed a lot of area for reserves and so 
with the great foresight, the gentleman who built most of the companies that we owned, that we subsequently acquired, and the original Austral Brick Company, realised that the clay was a problem and the councils always made it very difficult to get approval and often would ask that they got the quarry for a garbage tip at the end, right? mm-hmm. so you didn't actually get to keep it. So we broke out of that. So we had thousands of acres in every capital city and very so close to the city because the city developed. So then, big holes. No, a lot of it was virgin land, untouched. Right, we were running right. cows. We were the biggest, of so was the biggest ranch in Sydney. Right, so okay. you know, we'd run 500 head, you know. Like, so, but then they, because they built freeways, they built them through our land or right near our land. And sometimes we lost land and sometimes it added value because it was right beside our land. So, but then, of course, eventually the rezoning came. In actual fact, that was actually the second iteration because we'd already done that. Okay. And now we're working on the third iteration, 110 years, we're working on the third iteration of that sort of development. So now what we've found, of course, is the brick industry has changed dramatically in that we now get an enormous percentage of our material recycled from building sites that are now going deeper because the buildings are higher and where they've got the biggest hole closest to the city. And so we often take that material. We often get paid to take that material. Right. We recycle it, then make the bricks. And because we made bricks all over most of the cities at some point or another, yeah. we know all the various materials and how to quickly identify what they are and correctly you know, stockpile them. Yeah. So, and the business has gone through, like you said, growth upon growth, but you also made the move offshore. Well, that was part of the thing. You know, we can't grow, we can't acquire anyone. We're limited to what we can do in Australia. So the only option to grow the building products was to go offshore. The other companies involved in building products within Australia, the large public corporations as well. And as they say, Australia's a country of oligarchs and monopolists. And, yeah. and, you know, so we couldn't grow. In America, there's 40 brickmakers. They make five times the number of bricks per year. It's a great opportunity. We were fortunate enough to pick a company or find a company that was right down our alley, featuring or focusing on the architectural market. A long history, 100-odd-plus year history. Great people, great set of plants, great set of products. So what's the, you know, the next five years in store for us? We'll continue to grow each of those pretty strongly. We'll aggressively grow the United States footprint. And, you know, I hope we don't get to the point where we decide that Australia's, you know, not worth investing any more money in. Uh, and I can see the writing on the wall. Or we're prevented from investing any more money in Australia, one or the other. I guess they go hand in hand. Yeah, right. <laughs> Is it getting close to that or? Well, let me put it to you this way. You know, when they decide not to dam the Franklin River, that was the end of dams. Now, we need dams in Australia, but no one's built a dam since. Yeah. Now we've seen the, the battle over Adani coal mine. And you can see, well, hell, that could be the last coal mine. If it gets up, it'll be the last most probably. We don't want to drill for gas anywhere, so we're happy to run out of gas, and we are running out of gas. Yeah. We don't want to build coal-fired power stations, so we're happy to have unreliable electricity. Yeah. And I think, well, if this keeps going, you know, it's not too far down the track where they say, well, we don't want to burn gas or liquid or solid fuels anywhere. Well, we better cut out the brickmaking. Right. You know, so you can see that if we keep going the way we are, that's the progression that there'll be no manufacturing. Um, so just on that, yeah. manufacturing... How tough is it with the price of energy? Business conditions in Australia are toxic. Okay. Classic. In the United States, we're paying $3.20 or $3.30 a gigajoule for gas. Here we're paying between $10 and $13. The price of electricity is about three times the price. The price of wages are about twice the amount as what we are overseas. Now, to give us some example, if we built a plant equal to our best plant in Australia, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, yep. we can land them here in Australia after coming through the Panama Canal all the way across the Pacific Yep. cheaper than we could make them in 10 of our 11 operating plants in Australia. And they're pretty modern plants. I mean, these, we've got most probably the best set of plants in the world that anyone's got. So, so how much power do you consume? Oh, not an enormous amount. I think about five, five megawatts, something like that sort of order you know, across the whole company. Um, but the main thing for us is, is gas. We don't really want to go back to using coal in our kilns. We can if we wanted to. But, you know, people talk about renewables, but mm. as I say to the, the Brains Trust and the Greens Party, 
Um, can you tell me what the renewable liquid fuel is you're offering to run planes and things and what is your renewable solid fuel? Yeah. You know, the only renewable solid fuel I know is we do use is, is sawdust. Yeah, so, I mean, that's interesting. So when you're sort of interested, you see from the point of view that we've now gone into industrial sheds, we see that's an entrance into the new economy. Yeah. Because, you know, from where we're located here in Sydney, if you look east across Wetherill Park, every shed is a factory. Yeah, right. And you turn around on the spot and you look west, every shed's a warehouse. Right, okay. And now this new generation high-tech warehouse is very high, like the ones we're about to build for Coles, yeah. 10 stories high, massive footprints. There was a squad of robots inside moving product and making packages, palletizing and all these sorts of things without any human beings' involvement. So I don't know where a lot of governments are pushing for these warehouses to create employment, but they just haven't woken up the fact that these warehouses are about to automate and there's not going to be much employment. What is your dialogue with the minister's Look, I tried very much to change the political course of things early teens of this century, if you like, and then found myself in ICAC and achieving nothing. So I decided to be better talking to my hand than talking to a politician. Well, you talked about technology. Mm. Where's Brickworks in that? I'm pretty confident that the brick factories we've got are the most advanced in the world. Because of our investment portfolio, we've been able to continually invest even through the cyclical nature of the building products or the housing cycle. So the um, slowdown in the West, et cetera, doesn't... Oh, well, that's, that's another story. The technology comes into a couple of different places. So we've got the technology in the factories, but then what we're really seeing, or we start to look at, is the technologies involved in the construction process. And the same things that are affecting us in the factories are affecting the builders. We have a lack of trades. Mums want their kids to have a degree and not a trade. The kid's going to make a lot more money with the trade and most of the degree, people who get degrees don't get a job anyhow. You know, they're waiting in a bar or something. You know? So you have a shortage of trades. They want a fast construction, simple at the coal face. They want it clean. They want it safe. And you can't do that using traditional construction processes. So you see this movement towards modulation and panelization. Yeah. We've got a customer that's building prison cells. Okay. We've got this factory churning them out. We've produced the floor for them, but looking at producing the whole cell for them i got other customers that just do bathroom pods and they just lift the bathroom pod into the apartment building when they're building it. So there's that sort of, that's like if you like modulation. But in a big building, we make precast panels and then we put them all together and there's various systems of that. None of ours are like the one at Apple Tower, I've got to say, but it's that very fast, clean construction. Our factory runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When they need them, we just pour the panels in and, and they just assemble them. So that's the sort of way that things are going. And I think you're going to see that gradually move down. At the moment, that sort of technology pays where you've got the cost of time, where somebody's actually taken the risk. Whereas at the moment, at the other extreme for housing, the homeowner pays the cost of time by their renting. Right? Yeah. Now, the builder doesn't normally worry about it. That's why we can build a 50,000 square metre shed in six months. First, a shovel of dirt get turned over. Yeah. And you can spend nine or 12 months trying to build a little cottage. Now, in reality, you can build a little cottage in three or four weeks if you apply the technology, but that costs more. And so as the automation picks up and the cost of it comes down, you're going to see it go from industrial sheds and high-rise, medium density, and eventually into housing. So when I walk along the street Mm. and I go down Collins Street, what, last week, Mm. and I see a brickworks, a retail, (laughs) opening up flowers out the front, a bit of a celebration. What's all this play about, Lindsay? Well, come back to what I opened up about, making beautiful things that last forever. What are we selling? We're selling fashion. We're a fashion business. Think about what is the biggest fashion purchase that somebody makes in their life? It's their house. And have a guess what? Who makes that decision? I don't. It's not the bloke. Okay, (laughs) And it's a female and she's somewhere between most probably 30 and 50. And so it's all about style and fashion. Same if you're selling to architects, you're selling fashion. They want their, or you're selling art. 
they want their new building to get them the next award because it looks so fabulous. And so that's what it's all about. It's about selling to that high-end market. And, of course, if you went back 15, 20 years ago from our cheapest to most expensive product, it was most probably lucky if there was a multiple of two. We've got product today. You know, cheapest product is most probably 60 cents, say, a brick. But we've got bricks that we sell for $40 a piece, which has got to be ordered today for... <laughs> for a couple of containers for the glass bricks. They're fabulous. Is that being very popular, the glass bricks? Yes, it is becoming very popular, yeah. For a lot of interesting applications where people want something really striking. Well, they've got another reason. I can't really mention this particular client because it's very early, but it's a bit different. Yes, they are. But often we do jobs and we make special shapes and custom colours and things, and that's all, of course, going to be you know, hugely expensive to produce. And um, the bricks are coming back into the city too. Yeah, well, we'd have at the moment you know, maybe five or ten high-rises under construction in the Sydney CBD. Beautiful buildings. A couple have already opened there on Clarence Street, opposite our design studio in Sydney. Yeah. Yes, I said about another five or so under construction as we talk. So when you got that CEO gig 20 years ago, Lindsay, you've had to make a few calls pretty quickly. You've inherited someone else's work and inherited a good brand and a good reputation, but you've got to make your own mark. So how do you define success and how do you actually get the people around you to follow this person, as you say, I'm moving a million miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, two things there. Well, look, success is pretty straightforward. You know, what was the return for your shareholders? I mean, that's if you don't give them a return, I mean, you're out. So it comes back to what your profit is. What did we make? And did we give the shareholders a return? And yeah, sure, there's plenty of companies that have done better than I have and my team's done, but from $4 to $19, yeah. I'm sort of pretty happy with that. And on top of that, I haven't reduced the dividend since 1975, which was the only time we ever reduced the dividend since we listed in 61. And there's, we're only one of seven or eight companies on the stock exchange that can boast that. Quite remarkable. Um, that is, I would measure success. Some people buy widows and nursing homes and these sorts of things. They buy your shares and put them in the bottom drawer because they know they've got to get the dividend of the check every twice a year. That is success, not letting those people down because they're relying on you. And the second part of your question was about moving fast. Yeah, look, it's real easy to move so fast that you get too far in front of everybody and you lose them. And so you've got to pace yourself to the speed that your team can run. And you've got to be aware about what you're thinking and what your vision is. You've got to have the cognitive ability to know where to go or what to do, but you've got to make sure that you're getting your team to come along. And if they're not keeping up with you, you've got to go back and give them a bit of a help or put more resources or change the people if necessary to, to get the people to do what's required. Yeah, but what do you look for, Lindsay? You've got to hire the best team. Um, there's two perspectives because it's maybe different to what you're looking for if someone in an interview process like you, you would be doing versus if, you know, my prime objective is to find my own replacement. And, you know, I, I've been trying that every day for 20 years and I'm still trying, still learning. I've still got my list here. But, you know, if I'm looking at new employee, executive, and people really want to listen to this because... I can cut them in 10 or 15 seconds. The first thing I look at is how many jobs they've had. Now, I know it's really modern to flick the jobs really quick, yep. but that doesn't suit us. I mean, it takes us five to 10 years to build a factory. I need people who've got experience. They're going to build factories for me if that's their job. They're going to be here 20, 25 years because they're not going to learn how to build the factories. And the process itself, it's not a fast process. So you mine the clay this year, we're making the bricks out of it next year. So you've got to have people who've got long timelines. And so I pick up someone's resume and they've had 10 jobs in the last 20 years. It's, forget it. No use to me if they're changing jobs every two years. We're going to invest a fortune finding this person, training this person. They're not going to return anything for five or seven years. So I need people who've got stability. But then I look, you know, I see their smarts. I love their education. Is it in the right area? their experience, all those sorts of normal things. Because I only interview at the end. I mean, by the time they get to me, they've been cut a couple of times. Yep. And now I look, well, can I work with this person? You know, what's their personality? Is their culture going to fit in? Because this is where they're going to fail. Yep. Have they got the right work ethic and that? Now, that's completely different to if I'm looking for somebody who's replacement to me. And as I said before, 
at the end of the day, you've got to get things done. So you've got to have the go gene. And some people don't have the go gene. It really is you just watch them walk down the road. If they're not walking fast, they're never going to get enough stuff done, right? Um, they've got to have the mongrel gene because you're going to come up with a situation and you're going to have to make a hard decision. Yep. And if you can't make that hard decision, then you're going to fail at that point. And the number one reason why executives fail is because they fail to deal with their people problems. Okay. Wrong people off the bus, right people on the bus. And if you can't handle the people problems, if you're not going to be a mongrel when you need to be, then you're not going to address these issues and you're not going to lift the performance of your team. There's going to be self-starter on people problems. You've got to be able to think, solve problems, be agile. We have a measure with how agile because the problems that senior executives get, you've never seen before and nobody else in the organisation could solve it. They're there. You've got to work the solution out. That's what you get yeah. paid for, to work out the problem and solve the problem you've never seen before. You know, there's a whole lot of things. You've got to be sort of high profile for your customers and your community and investors. You've got to be able to turn businesses around. You've got to be cool under pressure. No matter how much pressure it is, you can't lose your cool. Lindsay, you're, you know, you, you've already dealt with a lot of pressure. So <laughs> well, how, how do you manage yourself and how do you take that breather and say, look, I'm cool, calm and collected? Well, I've been around so long. There's virtually nothing, nothing that comes at me that I'm going to go, well, how I'm going to, no matter how bad it is, right? right? I've been here before, right? Okay. Sometimes you can be a bit of a steadying influence of those around you that are starting to get a bit, when you're really under the pressure, you know, yep. like if you've got a court case or something on or had a horrendous thing, someone's been killed at work, yeah. you know what you've got to do and all that. But that's a different thing to how you sometimes get overwhelmed and need to relax. But just to finish off your question, the other thing is that you've got to be courageous against opposition. But finally, you've got to have that cognitive ability to see the future. Go, how am I going to make this? What's the positive change I want to make for the future and be able to deliver that? A lot of people don't have that cognitive ability to think, well, what's going to happen in three years, five years, ten years? You know, where are we going to be? What? Okay, so let's put a bit of time on that. That's the difference between every other person in the company and the CEO. Mm. So what do you put it down to? No, like you sit down at night and you a glass of red, you go to get up in the morning, go on the treadmill. When do you get the time to think and put all this together, Lindsay? Well, that's just two different sort of things. I mean, cognitive ability is actually a mental skill that you can measure. It's like somebody else's intelligence or yep. how good their hearing is or eyes. You're either born with that cognitive view or you're not. Yep. I would spend a few hours. I don't sleep much, but I'd spend a few hours every night mulling over the issues in my life, personal lives, company problems, how am I going to solve that? There's really nothing much happens at work that's really puts me under pressure unless some council's trying to close me down or something. So what's the uh, Lindsay Partridge day look like? What time are you out of bed? No later than five. Could be like three. I'll be, no, I'll be up at three and do a couple of things. Because we've got the 24-hour news cycle, as my guys say, because America's online, you know. Yeah. Recently, I'm normally in the office between 6 and 6.30. Yeah. I might have been to the gym already by then. It's meeting after meeting. With, usually, I try to get about 15 to 30 minutes gap in between every meeting so I can take the endless stream of emails that are coming in. So I'm responding to people all day long. Yeah. I was a single dad at one point in my life, so I like to get home five five thirty, yep. a couple of hours with my wife, yeah, and then back onto the emails and clean up. Or if I've done all that, I might read a book or watch the news. Okay. <laughs> For Murray live at nine o'clock at night, and I usually fall asleep at that point. Fair, <laughs> enough. Half hour. Fair enough. It's a, it's a long day then, Lizzie. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to get things done. You've got to be quick, you've got to scan, you've got to know what to look for, where to dig in, but you've just got this volume of work. It's just got to be poured through because the way I look at it is that at the end of every day, and that inbox is empty, oh, that in tray, that's empty because it's not empty. I'm holding somebody up. Okay. I'm the blockage in the company, right? I want them to be all the time. And then turned around overnight and in the morning there, by the time most of my employees or my senior people come to work, they've got you know one or more emails from me waiting for them <laughs> because it does their head in when they see the time when it came. You know? But not yeah. everybody gets everything right, Lindsay. Yeah. In growing your business, you've made obviously mistakes oh, along yeah, the way. Of course. Have you made many big ones which have turned around to be okay or you've made many big ones which have turned around to be 
Terrible. Well, one of the other things that you've got to encourage in your organisation that people can make mistakes and go on for them because otherwise they don't learn and they won't yeah. try and you don't want them to feel. I often say to the board, you know, there's a problem. We're going to say, we're going to write this off. <laughs> They're all horrified. But if you like, I want to call that destructive capitalism. You could call it that, but sometimes you just got to get in there and make the mistake, find out that, no, that's not for us. We're always sort of cleaning up a bit of a mess and we're also realising when plants have got to the end of their life that it's time we've got to shut them down, ride them off, bulldoze them over and then rebuild the one that does work. So how do you encourage that atmosphere and that culture, Lindsay? This is a really unique culture. Remember yeah, you yeah. said you're hiring for people to be stick around, what did you say, 25 plus years? Well, my, the, compared, most of my team in the 30, 35 years. Correct, yeah, and yeah. that is an anomaly compared to most other ASX companies out there. Yeah, so yeah. there's got to be some glue, there's some culture, Lindsay, which which is very particular. We have a very stable senior management. We have stable shareholders, so that's people can sit back and take the long term. I've always tried to make sure that people aren't overwhelmed with the issues. You don't want people being overwhelmed with issues that you should have seen, problems that are on the rise and you want to get rid of while they're on the rise and before they start to overwhelm. When people get overwhelmed and they start getting anxious, yep. they're no longer thinking. They're no longer thinking rational. And so you've yeah, got to make okay. sure I've got to build a job for the people that work for me that they can be successful at. If they can't be successful, I have to redesign that job so they can be successful. Right. So they're all going to be winners. And that might mean I've got to put in more resources, I've got to restructure it, I've got to help them out a little bit so that they feel successful in what they do. And it's the worst thing ever, and it happened to me a couple of times regularly in my career, mm-hmm. where I was thrown into an unwinnable position and I didn't have the authority to do what needed to be done to get out of it. So what did you do? I was set up. Oh, well, I was actually I was in America at the time. I closed down the business and I came home. <laughs> it's all right. But it was a great lesson. <laughs> and you, you couldn't have done a thing with it? Well, if they'd be prepared to go longer, but they weren't. I think we had good potential. We'd achieved an enormous amount, but it was in the middle of a recession. It was in the early 80s. And then I came back to Australia and then the recession came here. So I got a double dose of recessions. But yeah, so you always got to give people a winnable solution. You should never give in too early. You got to hang on make sure they've got all the resources they need. So often what I'm doing, running around, make sure people have got what they need to do what they need to do. Yeah, yeah the other thing that struck me about yourself, Lindsay, is you make decisions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what paid to do. You need yeah. all the information to make. Talk us through. Oh, yeah, decisions. decisions. Yeah. There's two sorts of decisions. One is one that you have control over the timeline. I think it's a capital decision. You've got the control over it, and you don't have to make that decision. You know, usually you're not under pressure. You're not really, really under pressure, I mean, unless it's like a breakdown or something. Let's, let's just, just fix it up and get going. But if you're building a new plant, is it going to work? What's the design of the plant? It's a $100 million decision. It's not going to the board till it's right. If I've got to put back a month or two, it gets put back a month or two. It gets put back six months or a year. It doesn't matter. $100 million is a lot of money. You can't get it wrong. Right? Yeah, it's right. got to be right. Now, the other sort of decision is, what am I going to do with this person? Should I be giving them a warning or should I be firing them? What am I going to do? And you're never going to know all the information. You've seen a wisp of smoke. You're smart enough to realise there's a problem. You've gone and had inquiries with those people who have inquiries. Most of them tell you there's a problem. Some say there's not a problem. But you know you've got a problem because performance, morale, all those things. So anyhow, you make that decision. And, of course, within two, three seconds after they've left the site, every other person then comes in to tell you the real story. And I've got to tell you, the real story is always much worse than what you ever thought it was. All right. It's always much worse. It is never better. No one ever comes in. You shouldn't have sacked him. Oh, yeah, you know, you know what he did, you know. (laughs) Didn't act fast enough. (laughs) Well, it's always, you're always too slow. So self-starter people problems. And you've got to be proactive and you can't let people say, oh, no, we're all going to be happy here. We can't ever say that you know, this person's got to go or, you know, you, you end up with an organisation where you have very limited control. There's no motivation. They can't get decisions because they don't make decisions. They're not getting them like they need. Yep. They're not getting answers. 
they've been abandoned, they've been left out to do some stuff that the boss should have done but he's not here and so you have to sort those things out and sort them out quickly and decisively. There's, there's no choice and it's always worse. It's never better. It's always worse. One thing that's also struck me, Lindsay, is your ability as a company, maybe and you as, as an individual, to understand your customers. Investment and time and effort you put into your customers. You want to sort of share a bit of that? Well, we're very much focused on relationship selling. Now, come back, a lot of our competitors think that bricks are a commodity and so they're, at that point in time they're gone. Mm. So if you're selling a commodity, we do sell some commodities but very few. You don't want to be talking about the product because they would just want to talk about the price. So what you've got to do is have a relationship with them so you're talking about something else. So you have like an incentive trip. So when you go visit the customer, you talk about the incentive trip, you never talk about the product. It's just a given that the quality service price is okay and we just talk about the incentive trip. Now, if you're going to sell fashion, that's a different thing and that's what the design studios are about. But if you build that relationship and you've got that relationship with the builder and you've actually gone away and you've built this really deep personal relationship with him, his wife, his kids, the dog, you know, whatever, and you know everything about them, yep. when's her birthday, what's her favourite champagne and perfume, what does he like to do sports, everything about these people. Yep. And you've gone on trips together for a couple of weeks. Well, you know what's going to happen when you've got a competitor come in, you're always going to get the opportunity to have the last bid to keep the work if you're under that. But normally you'll be able to give them the price rise at the same time you tell them about the next trip and the price rise just goes straight through. But was that customer insight and that customer focus, the ethos there when you when you Yes, it in? was right from the beginning. Yeah, my predecessor was very much focused that way. It hadn't been prior to that, but we were always very much relationship driven. And that's been a key determinant of the success of the business? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because it's a hard business building products and if you can pick up two or three percent market share a year, you're doing very well and you've just got to build those relationships. We started at about 10, 12% market share and now we're half. So that's a long way. And that was all done at 2 or 3% a year for, for 30 years sort of thing. You know? Tremendous success story. I guess the thing which would be interesting to us is in your role as CEO and in your role as representing manufacturing, where do you see Australia? Where do you see the economy? Where do you see yeah. lost opportunity? Yeah, well, this is like I was telling you the story about the sheds, sheds that made things and the sheds that warehouse things. Unfortunately, I don't think what politicians don't realise – say the price of gas, price of electricity goes up, but they didn't close, so it's okay. They won't close. No, 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 no. That's not what's happening at all. What's happening is the manufacturer's washing out his invested capital, depreciating it out. And then they've already made the decision. They're not reinvesting. They're going. But that factory's just wearing down, wearing down, wearing down, and then when it suits them, closed, gone. And at the moment, what we're seeing going on is there'll be no fertiliser produced or explosives produced in Australia. We've got gas as their feeds. Seeing aluminium smelting is going to go. Um, I actually think the government will might want to close the aluminium smelters down to get the electricity, keep electricity up to households. You think so? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, they already closed it down every time there's an outage. So they'll all go. So you can see there's just industry after industry is going to leave and reality that leaves you with, and even in agriculture, you can see a poor farmer who's bought a 1,000 acres and he can't clear the regrowth, the government's taking over their land. I mean, how are we even going to have agriculture? Because they're trying to drive it so that the whole place goes back to what it was back in the 1700s. So I don't know where that's going. I don't know what people think they're going to do, but, you know. What's the other CEO <coughs> saying? They're all in a violent agreement with you, Lindsay? Oh, yes, and we're part of Grips Manufacturing Australia and they've got the same issues. That's how come I know those stories because those people representatives from those companies are on that board. So, so where does it leave the industry in all? Is it, is it more of a focus around the whole AI, robotics, et cetera, to replace humans or is oh, it just well, it's all too difficult, we're going to pack our bags and go off? We're already there. I don't know if you've stuck your head in one of our factories. There's like, you talk about advanced manufacturing, there's no people. <laughs> I mean, there's very few people. <laughs> you've got a factory that's 15 acres under roof and there's like two people inside it. But no, it's, it's important. 
and be honest, that we're actively looking for a country close to Australia. And New Guinea's an interesting one. You know, mm-hmm. they've got gas. They're only 40 kilometres off our coast. You get, because we're not our coastal shipping in Australia, but we'd be international if we're coming in from New Guinea. Yep. So we're looking into that. But, I mean, reality, I mean, America's such a great place. And the other things, the way of life and the ability to get things done, that it's maybe a better place to operate from. But we, I can see that, you know, when we won't be making anything anymore here, I think that's just a matter of time. How long do you give us? Uh, <laughs> well, I just think you're just going to see industries going steadily withdrawing. And you said on both sides of politics, Lindsay? Well, look, politics is really interesting. I mean, both major parties can only get 70-odd percent of the vote. So that tells you there's a problem. There's a problem there. They're not representing it. And But what's happened is it's a bit like what Donald Trump realised is that there's a splice-off on both parties. He can splice off a cohort of people that actually believe in him. And, and you see it now at the moment in the Labor Party and that you've got the CFMEU, who we've got yeah. some CFMEU guys work for us. Yep. They don't agree. They want to see the coal mines and the Greens side of the party doesn't want to see that it, right? And you see the same in the right, in the Libs. They've got those that think that we're all about to die a terrible death because of climate change and those that think there's a whole lot of rubbish. You can see that you could split the parties the other way, put a line across the other way and split them the other way, if you like. The eco-fascists on one side <laughs> and the free enterprise people on the other. But at the moment, we've got this sort of weird sort of thing where both major parties are split because there's no room or anything. So where's the dialogue in general with business? Do you think there's much dialogue with either side? Look, as I said, came back before, you can have the dialogue, but you don't get it. The big issue, no politician is prepared to go argue a case and carry the case. Yeah, okay, right. They, they concede. There's not enough agreement in within their own party to carry the case on one of the issues that's affecting us. And that's the problem, whereas if you had a realignment, you might start to get that. And I don't know whether that's going to happen or we're just going to make this fractured situation where nobody really gets adequate control to actually fix up the problems one way or another. Bit of a lateral question. What new belief or habit has changed for you (laughs) in the last five years, Lindy? Well, I came to the conclusion a couple of years ago that I wasn't going to retire early. (laughs) A couple of things brought me to this conclusion. First of all, we're all going to live longer and we may live much longer. My father lived to 96, right? So I think we might live much longer than we think and that's a long time retired. Secondly, you're going to need more money to do that. But what are you going to do at home? Like, I'd be bored. What would I do? I mean, I'm not going to play golf on Wednesdays and Saturdays. And <laughs> I'd be down the restaurant every day getting pissed at lunch. You know, like, <laughs> what do I do with myself? You know, so, yeah, so I decided that I'll, I'll work as long as they'll have me and put in more years. But also I think I've got a lot to share and offer to the young people coming through and, you know, my war stories and experience. There's a lot I can offer to them. So I think it's good. And I think you're generally going to find a lot of the baby boomers are going to work longer than what people of the previous generation did. A lot of those retired in their like mid-50s, which if you think you're going to live to 90 or 100, I mean, that's a long time retired. Agreed. Mm. How do you keep yourself relevant? And what I mean by that, how you across everything, one, you're CEO, but also up to speed on everything, Lindsay? Oh, you read prodigious yeah. multiple sources. That can be a bit overwhelming, but there's stuff coming all the time. I also, I'm a bit of a history buff. I like reading history when I get some spare time, which is usually on a long flight somewhere. I don't read fiction. I don't really watch a movie or anything like that. It's all facts and educating myself the whole time. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Lindsay, if you were talking to the young Lindsay Partridge today, what advice would you give him? Yes. Uh, look, I thought about this for a while, but I'd back yourself. Go long on yourself. Plan for success. Back yourself. Back yourself? I think back times I could have gone harder. I mean, I'm talking also in personal finances and things, yeah. but you're always sort of worried about, is it going to work out? But yeah, you back yourself. It's amazing what you can do and achieve things you never thought you would. How do you deal with criticism? Because as a chief exec, you're exposed, oh, right? And it's the loneliest job there is. <laughs> okay, there's self-belief in backing yourself, but yeah, you how gotta, do you actually deal with the criticism? Evolve it. I mean, of course it hurts, but you evolve it. Uh, pretty thick skin about it all. 
I mean, sometimes people say, if somebody says something to you that's not true, well, you've got to challenge it immediately. But often people, they've got, you can't get to my level and not have a few enemies out there. There's lots of enemies out there and they'll, any chance they, they can get, they'll throw a spear at me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, you don't yeah. lose any sleep on it. No. There's more to it. Can you do about it? You're not going to go take it up with them. That's, they're entitled to say what they want to say. But. Well, Lindsay, look, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed today. Thank you very much for making the time yeah, and, and joining us here. Very good. Thank you. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>